Hey, this is Rod Cleef, and you are listening to the Mailbox Money Show with Bronson Hill. This is the Mailbox Money Podcast, and I am Bronson Hill. As a busy professional, I wrestled with how to grow my income without taking up more of my precious time. I learned that managing real estate, actively trading stocks, or being unable to scale up investments is not passive investing. This is the place where you'll discover new asset classes, develop investing skills, and learn from experts how to become financially free with less work than you thought possible. And now, get ready for truly passive income. Welcome to the Mailbox Money Show. My name is Bronson Hill. I'm your host here. And this show, we talk all about passive investing and how to learn about other forms of passive investing beyond buying rental houses or doing active stock strategies, things that are actually passive. And so I feel as an investor, it's really important that we learn how to do different things. Some people wonder, why don't you just stick to real estate or why don't you stick to apartment buildings? I say, well, because apartment buildings aren't always the best at a certain time. And so uh, today with me, I have just an awesome guest to talk about oil and gas, uh, Grant Norwood, who is the CEO of Norwood Energy Company. Uh, He has a lot of experience in the industry. He's going to help kind of demystify some of the oil industry for us. Because if you're like me, sometimes it can be a little confusing. Is it, you know, is it drilling? Is there gas? Is there other things around that space? And so we're going to just unpack all of that. So Grant, welcome. How are you today? I'm doing good, Bronson. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Really excited to have you. Um, So tell us a little bit of your story. Uh, I know you said you live in in Dallas, Texas, which is is big. You know, Texas is, is, you know, everything's bigger in Texas, but uh, oil country and energy country. Give us a little bit of your background and kind of how you got started in the oil industry there. Definitely. Well, I mean, Dallas is probably only number two to Houston as far as kind of like an energy hub capital for companies and, and the like. But anyways, you know, I grew up right here, actually. Uh, but we had a property in West Texas and I, you know, I've talked about this on other shows and stuff, but uh, when you have oil and gas wells all over the property and then the property was just one of those places that had great deer hunting. So a lot of the executives from Devon, uh, formerly Mitchell, um, several East Texas companies, they, they would come out there and hunt with us. And that was probably from my years eight through 18. Um, so a lot of curiosity there and kind of as everything was wrapping up, you know, my family was, uh, selling the place when my grandfather was, uh, passed, actually when he passed away, um, you know, I kind of lost those contacts for a period of time, but once I, um, jumped in the industry and that was through land and title, which is a very essential part of the business, um, I was able to rekindle those relationships and, you know, who wants to, who wants to mess with you too much when you're, 18, 19 years old and just really curious, not too many. Um, But as you kind of get your feet wet and then if you work hard enough and move up, then those people uh, enjoy dealing with you. And today they're almost peers. So uh, it only took a decade, but happy to be there. And it's kind of like you have that connection. But um, that's really how I kind of, I guess, wet my interest for it. and then just being around it, it only felt natural. You know, I was going to school for political science. I uh, thought that was something I was really passionate about. And I was until this avenue opened. But it's like kind of what we'll probably talk about. It's kind of mysterious. You know, you sell that equipment. You know, you know, there's so much money thrown around, but it looks like a bunch of cheap metal that nobody wants to mess with. So what is it? What does it do? Where does it come from? How does how does it create all this prosperity? Um, you just don't know till someone's willing to explain it. So, yeah, absolutely. You know, 
one thing. Yeah, to it, it, it is something. It's like uh, speaking a foreign language, right? Until you've actually learned some of the words, or you kind of—I don't know if I learned Spanish in high school, and it was like, you know, Miyama. I just remember we had this guy from—I think he was from Georgia—and I grew up in Seattle, and he'd be like, "Hola, Miyamo." <laughs> like he just—he yeah, didn't know what. Like it was just—it was totally foreign. And then by the end, he was actually—he still had his his uh, his southern twang there, but it, it like sounded a little better. But let's let's talk a little bit. Um, we're going to get into the oil industry as a whole. But let's talk a little, even a little bigger picture than that right now, because I think that uh, some trends, I always look at kind of mega trends or macroeconomic trends and something, a couple of interesting things are happening is one is that we're exploding in, as a, in the world as far as how much oil and gas and fossil fuels that we need. I mean, there's just, you know, all over the developing world, all over Africa and Asia and China, all over, just there's so much need and usage for fossil fuels. And there's actually a direct correlation between how much fossil fuels we've used and standard of living. And a lot of people don't realize that's kind of what it is. But yeah. then you have this like $100 trillion uh, you know, amount of people that manage hedge funds or large funds that have taken this kind of climate pledge or they don't want to do things in the fossil fuel related, only green energies, which really aren't as green when you kind of get at the bottom of some of the stuff. But it's like putting a lot of strain on costs and a lot of the, a lot of these fossil fuels the costs are going up because the demand is is continuing to rise and yet there's less exploration and development of that happening is that some can you expand kind of on how why, why and how that's happening i would love to and i've just gotta applaud you because you you took half of the things i was gonna say <laughs> you know um you're right you know what's interesting is it takes about 600 barrels of oil to actually build an ev and you know how many miles are going to be on your car before you burn through 600 barrels? Quite a few. Um, 50,000 or something, right? More than 100, probably. It depends on wow. what you drive. I wow. mean, if it's a diesel like mine, hey, you know, we're probably breaking even. But uh, for, you know, the average midsize SUV and, you know, sedan or whatever, you know, it's hard to find the value or the benefit uh, from an environmental standpoint, on top of, you know, your electricity is 10% oil, about 60% natural gas, uh, 20% coal, 5% hydro. So we're around 3% solar and wind. So um, it's it's just around Robin. So the more they build them, the more the demand goes up. But it's, it's kind of like a catch-22, you know. Uh, we know we need it. We know we need more of it. We know that our uh, current reserves aren't going to get us very far down the road. Uh, and then we're discouraging additional investment, both from like, you know, a policy standpoint, um, just kind of popular opinion and stuff. Nobody likes to be the old guy at the table in kind of a progressive uh, setting, uh, because for one, you know, you know, you're doing something that actually is benefiting everyone there. They wouldn't be at the table. The table wouldn't be there. The food wouldn't come out either. It is the mother of all commodities and, and all services and all industry. So without it, you know, we wouldn't have these luxuries. It, does it leave a footprint? Yes, so does everything else. It's actually a smaller manageable footprint uh, that we're well aware of and have spent the last 120 years uh, trying to mitigate. So we've come so far with it. Um, I wish there's more support for it. So just kind of to not deviate too far off of uh, what you're asking, um, we know the demands there. We know it's going to continue to be there, but we've got uh, a, kind of the general opinion that it's it's on its way out, uh, but it's it's far from it. It's just we're actually on our way out of easy, low-hanging fruit reserves that we can produce in a timely manner. So 
Uh, hopefully it changes or, I mean, as, as much as it pains me, we're going to be short. Uh, it's going to help companies at my level of play. Uh, the big companies will have to probably, you know, turn on a dime and play catch up. Um, but a lot of this stuff will go on out when you when you see three or four hundred dollar barrel oil, just because the shale world's got about five, six years left uh, on the scale that it's at now. And 90 or nine million out of our 13 million barrels uh, come from those wells that are under 36 months old. So, you know, if we have three or four more years of inventory uh, on a tier one acreage basis, two or three years of inventory, on a tier two acreage basis, tier threes, they don't they don't make money till two hundred dollars a barrel. So uh, they won't even consider drilling them till we're far north of that. Uh, yeah, no, I want to stop you once I grad. There was a book that really helped. I think for anybody listening, there's a book called The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels by a guy named Alex Epstein. And it sounds like you're shaking your head. You've read this book. It it basically frames it. You know, we think. Uh, just the way the media portrays it, that we should feel guilty for driving our cars or flying in planes, whatever. But he's basically saying, no, it's actually our lives are better off because we use fossil fuels. And he gives all kinds of examples. He gives example of a baby who is in a third world country that dies because even though they have the equipment to help the baby because they don't have reliable energy and they have to turn off the electric grid for a few hours, they cannot power it and the baby dies. And so it just, there's so many things in life like that. And, you know, how many hundreds of products come from petroleum and this kind of thing. But um, so I, I think, you know, that's something that, you know, and in California, actually, I drive an electric car, but not because I'm a super, you know, it's funny, I'm kind of a little bit of a thing. It's the technology. They're fine. Well, well, I drive it because um, honestly, there's a place in town. I just go over there and I just go get a cup of coffee and they charge, they charge it for free. So in an hour, it'll charge for free and I don't have to pay anything. So it's like, but, you know, how do they get that electricity in California? it's about 50% imported or it's basically fossil fuels are being either natural gas or coal are being burned to provide this green energy. So it's a lot of people don't realize that, that it's so, it's such a, to me, it feels like a bit of a scam, but um, tell me a little bit more about as an investor, let's shift gears to like, as an investor. Yeah, so if I, I know I'm invested in some oil and gas stuff, we've got a kind of a speculative oil and gas, a new technology around oil and gas that we've done. And we've syndicated or put out a fund for that. But uh, what, what are some things to kind of be aware of as an investor when you're just getting new to oil and gas or approaching this field? Well, it's, it's kind of the opportunities are there. There's plenty of people that offer and plenty of companies, whatever have you. It's just managing risk. And then um, kind of you got to get in the game, play it and decide what you like. So you can get into something that lacks excitement, but is super safe and it might not even be worthwhile enough, or you kind of find a happy medium between that and something where, you know, one in five wells works, but one in five wells might be a 50 or 60 to one. And that sounds astronomical, but uh, you kind of go from, you know, a sound business strategy that may not be as exciting to something where you better have some stay in power or don't, don't join in. Because uh, really, if 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 you don't have the staying power and it's an individual well thing and it's high risk, how, how are you going to be on the right one? No, you need to stay in until you get the right one, and then it makes it all better. So that's that's kind of on the drilling side. I kind of like uh, a happy medium, but really halfway between medium and too conservative. Right. So 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 you come in. So just real quick, the. Um... So if somebody comes in, obviously they have to have a certain level of net worth if they're coming into a drilling type operation, because there's going to be a hit or miss type of thing. I know it's gotten better as far as proven reserves, um, but what are some things, 
because again, I, I go to shows and I go to things where they have there's all these, you know, I think the oil reputation or oil kind of oil person or oil, you know, there's just a lot of people out there doing this. And yeah, how do you, how do you somebody vet, you know, operators or what's a way that somebody can kind of tell as an investor, like, Hey, these are good guys or these aren't good guys. Is it all reputation? Is it uh, just the, the reserve they're on? I mean, what are some things kind of generally that people should look for? Man, honestly, uh, if somebody wants your business and stuff, they, I mean, you're really, you can, you can check references. That's almost a must. Um, you can check track record. That's also a must. If they've never done anything, stay away. Uh, but if it's all over the board, you know, one thing, one thing you can't get upset with is an operator or a geologist about a dry hole. If that had, if that had a meaningful outcome and the potential was there and it didn't pan out, you can't get upset with that if you knew what you're getting into because that's what you're getting into. Now, on the other hand, it just depends on what's being offered, what's being sold, what's being projected. And then if, if you feel good about it, but what I was about to say, and, and we'll get back to is get them to let you try something small. If they treat you well, whether or not it, it goes well, was he honest? Was he like, hey, this is very conservative. It's going to be very boring. Or was he telling you, oh, it's going to be great and it's going to be super lucrative? Well, it can or it cannot be. You know, there's not many crazy good, like 20 plus to one type opportunities that don't come with a great deal of risk. Now, three, four, five to one, short time, long time, whatever, uh, they're out there as long as the day is. Uh, but a lot of times people find their way into this because it's romantic, it's exciting. And I try to steer the guys that, you know, inherited a half a million dollars and want to put half of that into oil and gas. I try to steer them away from it because what they're wanting to do is just come in and double their money. And they're like, Ooh, I can finally do something I've never been able to. It's not, that's not the guy that uh, should get in this because he's better off to still have it at the end of it. And somebody right. that, you know, like that, they're not going to check references. They're right. not going to check the track record and they're, they could get the right guy, but it's likely that they're probably not. Well, there's uh, a conversation here too around the the net worth of a person, right? So if somebody is, you know, we have certain deals too that are higher upside that almost function a little more like VC, where it's like, okay, maybe with 10% of your net worth, you put them in, if you have a certain net worth, you put them in things like this, where it's okay, I've got a net worth of three million or higher, then I can take. 300k and put it in three different deals, you know, three different 100k, deals. yeah, 100k in three different deals or three different drill, whatever it would be. We do, you know, precious metals or oil and gas right. deals, or we do other sorts of exploration stuff. And it's like that's, but it just it's it's a prof it's a risk profile, and that's why someone who has a net worth of 300k it doesn't make sense for them typically to do something like this. You just you, for one, it's illegal. For two, you know, it's it, it's for them to be safe. It's not going to be what they're expecting. Now, if they were to take that 150,000, break it up 50, 50, 50, and they look to have the 150 back in two years, and then by year 10, they're looking at three and a half to one, the property's still probably worth 60% of what they put in it. If that's pleasing to them, they can find that, and it's most likely going to happen. You know, so, uh, and then your other scenario where 10% of your net worth is 300 grand, 103 deals. Um, it's not outside the realm of possibility that that goes bad, but when you're putting that kind of money in and you have modest results, it's great for that guy, you yeah. know, because if he's, if he's making half a million, 
to 750,000 a year, that 300,000 comes straight off of that income in the eyes of the IRS. He saves, shoot, 30%. So he made 30% the day he got in. Um, so his threshold to receive his capital back is lower. His threshold to make a multiple, the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, all in the perpetuity times uh, is also much lower. So right. that, he's going to have a good experience. He's going to be more seasoned. And, you know, there's wealthy guys in Vegas sitting at the craps table. And then there's wealthy guys that won't even go to the craps table. So it's not like he's just not a gambler because he was able to come by that wealth in life. But more often than not, he's probably a little more conservative. So he's probably going to have a more consistent outcome from one deal to the next. So, um, like I said, it's hard for me to be an old guy and take anything away from the ones that go elephant hunting. I mean, I just for the longest time only used my own capital, so I never had uh, that desire. But you can, you can, you don't have to be so conservative that that you're only hitting three to ones and waiting five years just to break even. You know, you yeah. can get down to under two years and under ten achieve the same thing with like a forty-year production profile. You know, um, so that's that's kind of the happy medium I strive for. And really, if like I said, I would almost even if a deal says like hundred thousand dollar minimum, try to convince the guy for to do twenty five. If uh, if he's going to be in the business for a while, you just want to try him out, you yeah. know, and just see how he treats you, see how he keeps you informed, uh, see how their team handles the objective. Yeah, because it. The, de the deals are out there and some deals go bad because it's not the right guy doing them. And right. some people try real hard and they do good on some, bad on the others because it's it's way more uh, involved or, or beyond like a crapshoot. But uh, there is a certain amount of um, good fortune that just finds people. You know, I, you brought up a couple things there. You're sharing a lot of good things. I'm going to keep interrupting you because you're you're sharing. Oh, no, a lot no, of I like it. Way. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think you know when it comes to uh, you know finding. You talked about the investment amount. We talked about you know good operators versus bad operators. Even you being able to negotiate the minimums for things, which is great. Kind of more conservative versus right. having diversified approach. And then you mentioned about tax benefits. Um, I know with oil drilling, is it 80 percent? Is typically a year one. Loss. Somebody invests 100k, you get an 80%, and that can be against ordinary income or active income. Is that right? It is. So ordinary active income, because as passive as you feel, you're not ever going to have to pick up a screwdriver. You're never going to have to sling chains on a rig. It's active. LPGP direct participation. It's still treated as active. It goes on your schedule C. So right. Um, Which is really unique for for energies because even if someone is a you know an investor and they invest passively in a real estate deal or something, um, or even actively, it does it only stays on the side unless they're a real estate professional. So it's kind of an incentive, really, the government's put there for energy. Does this exist beyond oil? I mean, is there other things uh, that are? It's Reagan oil, the one that, Yeah, Reagan's the one that started it, and it's still there today. I mean, we need the resources. As uh, shale winds down, that's going to be more and more evident. You know, if you think about what it was like before shale, we were at $140 a barrel. It was cratering the economy along with um, the whole real estate deal that was going on at the time. And then shale came along. That was the true price of a barrel, $140 back in 2008. 
take shale away, how much have things inflated since 2008? We've been drilling the best shale wells we can for the last 15 years on the best acreage we have. It's depleted. We've got a few more years. When that goes away, look at lumber, look at steel, look at anything, look at your Happy Meal. You know, you could get the dollar menu existed back then, or it was uh, probably even cheaper than that. I think they just took it away two or three years ago. But anyways, um, I just, we're going to be in for some high prices. So they've never taken it away. And I think they have no way to uh, do away with it going forward. There might even be additional incentives just because like some of the, some of the things come full circle with these renewables and we're going to be no farther than we started. And then the one reliable commodity that we have doubles or triples in price. What else is there to do? But either way, your question was 80% first year. For the past few years, it's been 100% because the 80% is intangible. And then the 20% is usually tangible. And is that exact? No, it's usually anywhere from like 70 uh, to 80, 85%. But you've had this bonus depreciation thing. You've had 179. Now they're slowly starting to walk down. Uh, the bonus depreciation, 179, still in place. Uh, but they've had it where it's been 100% for the last few years. 22 was like the last year for that. Uh, Rick, but it's Rick, still... Sorry, um, tell us about, um, I want to just make sure we have time. Uh, your you're role good, in this, I know you're you're in oil and gas. Do you guys do more of, do you have a fund? Do you do more kind of like individual drilling and what areas and what sort of stuff, what, like what's your involvement specifically and what sort of things do you have in the investment space now in oil? Uh, so we're active in Kansas, Texas, Oklahoma, and Louisiana. Um, we're probably most active on the drilling side in Kansas, most active on the acquisition side in Texas. So we made about seven acquisitions since December in Texas. We made four last year in Kansas. We've drilled... 11 wells in the last six and a half months in Kansas. And we have a rig showing up next week to drill three more. Um, so we do a lot of drilling and we do a lot of acquisitions. So really uh, the acquisitions have come from actually uh, doing shows like these uh, with syndicators. They're like, Hey, we're going to air this, but after we've got something lined up and uh, they've, they've done so well in real estate over the last few years and now they're they're hesitant to put it back into that. So everyone's sitting on all this capital and they don't know where to go with it. Um, you can only do so many car washes, so many, many storage units. What else is lucrative? What else can we put capital behind and see solid returns? Well, if you want to play it safe, you buy producing fields. You've got years, sometimes decades, close to half a century in most cases of history of what those wells have done and or what pricing environments um, and then you've got engineering reports on how long they're still going to do it. So whether you're getting in, holding the potato for a little bit, and then throwing the potato to the next guy, and just playing that hot potato, and just trading these assets and buy low, sell high, cash flow while you're holding, uh, or you're buying it and holding it indefinitely, or until it looks like it's uh, reached its sunset years, um, that's your safest approach. You know, if you right. want to, yeah, if you want the big moves, you got to drill. You want the that's safe it. moves? You um, 
No, that's that's really great. I think uh, you know being involved and having skin in the game and, and something that has a macro the macro view is is really great. I mean, there's nobody that I know that really is like, oh yeah, the price of oil. Even people that are green, nobody's saying the price of oil and it's going to go down. We're not going to need it. We are going to need it. Um, you know, but anyway, uh, one question I like to ask. I'm going to ask you one last question here at the end. But what's uh, one of the question I like to ask Grant is what's something that you invest in personally outside of oil? Is there any other investments besides kind of oil and gas that you like doing that you're interested in just personally? Honestly, crypto and hunting properties. I okay. just like to hunt for one and I'll just, I'll find that something that interests me and it's never very big. You know, it's uh, just me and a few of the guys in the office and that's something we really enjoy. I'll just hold them till I get more than I pay for them. And usually it's been a few seasons and we're ready to kind of check out a new area, but I really enjoy buying and selling crypto. There's no rhyme or reason. I don't really believe in it too much. Uh, I just know that there's enough diehards that it's probably not going anywhere. So when it drops, I buy more. When it raises, I sell half. And I've been yeah. doing that for several years and it's made a little bit of money. But other yeah, than well, that, yeah, I just kind of put it back in my own operation. Yeah, that's great. No, I love it. Uh, well, Grant, how can people get in touch with you if they want to hear about what you're doing and some of the opportunities that you guys have? I mean, call the office, leave a message. I'll get back to you. Um, fill out a contact form on the website. That's probably the well, easiest. What, what is way. the website? Can you give us the website? Uh, NorwoodEnergyCorp.com. Okay. Norwood Whether Energy you need Corp. a consultant, geological work, interested in what's going on, it doesn't matter. We'll help you out. We'll vet out whatever it is you're considering. Um, I actually like doing that because ever since kind of some of these syndicators came along, we, it's hard to have any room. And if you did want something that we're involved in, I kind of steer you in that direction anyway. Um, so just outside of that, anything, uh, whether you have minerals, you don't know what to lease them for or whatever, uh, you know, we've full spectrum across the board. Awesome, man. Well, cool. Well, I appreciate you uh, being with us today and, uh, thanks for, all the value out of the conversation. I think it's great to have conversations around something we need, such as, as oil and gas. And it's just something that, you know, a lot of people don't realize how, especially like where I live in California, it's like, we think, Hey, people are just going to have, you know, energy coming from wherever it comes from and you plug in or you go wherever you go. And it's it, a lot of this comes from fossil fuels, which really make our lives way better. So uh, Grant, thanks for being here today. Appreciate you. We'll put some links in the uh, the in, in the show notes. And so appreciate you being here. Thanks, man. Yeah, appreciate it. Had a great time. All right. So Grant, very experienced in the oil and gas space and very knowledgeable. And he, you know, he's really right that we are going to need more and more oil in the future. And I think this is something that it's a diversification play. Uh, and a lot of people think when they look at investments, they look at things just simply, well, I, I invested in this last year and it went down or, you know, the price of natural gas is down now or whatever, or something we think, oh, it's going to be down forever. But commodities, which is what oil and gas are and these other uh, products we, you know, we use for energy, they're commodities, which means they will go up, they will go down and there is a time to buy and there's a time to sell. And if you can get involved in the production of some of that, you know, a lot of us can do very, very well. So this may not necessarily make sense for someone who's has a, a net worth of 500k or has a net worth of you know 700k but maybe or less if somebody has a net worth of 5 million or 3 million or something like that actually the drilling side of having more access to high upside is huge so um, now one thing people cannot really tell you what you should do is uh, how much you know should you invest right or how should you allocate your portfolio that's something even as an investment advisor when I was licensed which I'm no longer 
um, it was hard because you had to give people here. Okay, generally somebody's older, or they typically have a low risk tolerance, this kind of thing. But if somebody has a high net worth, they can uh, invest in higher upside things. And so uh, my friend George Gammon says, he calls it the 10-80-10 principle, right? You have 10% of what you have in gold or metals, which is like insurance against uh, hedging against inflation, which I think is a great idea, which I do. Actually, I probably more than 10%. And then 80% in cash flowing investments that pay you to hold them. And then you have 10% in this higher risky type of thing, right? So maybe you have a $5 million net worth. If 10% is in there, that's like 500K, right? And maybe that goes into five different deals, such as oil and gas deals or gold and silver mining stocks or crypto or other sorts of things that you know have a potential to have a, a you know a two I say more like a 5 10 100x type of things and we've done some stuff like that that's almost has a little more VC type of feel where it has a much higher feel but it's got to be the right investment for you it's got to be something that really fits your investment profile uh, but anyway I hope you enjoyed this episode mailbox money i really enjoyed this one we were able to talk to him get through some different things but i'd love to know from you stick in the comments below or share this episode with someone else you think might benefit from learning about oil and gas learning about growing their passive wealth thanks for taking the time to educate yourself we look forward to seeing you on the next episode of the mailbox money show have a wonderful day you've been listening to the mailbox money podcast for more free resources articles and videos go to bronsonequity.com there you can download your copy of the special report, The Single Best Investment Strategy During and After a Pandemic. None of the information shared here is an offer to buy a specific investment, and this is for educational purposes only. Consult your financial, legal, and tax professionals and use your own common sense before making any investment decisions. Thanks for joining us, and be sure to tune in next time for more Mailbox Money.